It's 1949, the year that NATO was created. Harry Truman is sworn in as president for the second time. Chinese communist forces enter what is now Beijing. On Long Island, famous developer Bill Levitt is busy building Levittown. And on March 12th, thousands of Newsday readers across Long Island open up their papers and read this on the editorial page. Organizations which appear to be either communist-dominated or communist-inspired have been attempting to raise a racial issue at Levittown. The issue did not exist until it was fostered by people not immediately affected by it. Their only real motive seems to be to set race against race, and, if possible, to bog down the Levitt building program, which means homes for thousands of people. These characters pretend to be great conscientious do-gooders. Actually, they exploit the imperfections of a society they would wholly destroy. This is Michael Dobie, my colleague on the editorial board here at Newsday, who joined us for a little of our first episode. He didn't write this editorial, FYI. He wasn't alive then. Right, Michael? Not quite. Anyway, Michael has been looking back at this editorial and others for a reappraisal that you can read on Newsday.com. He's going to channel that editorial energy and read the quotes for us. The main issue is there was a racial issue in Levittown. Federal mortgage policies supported separate living in the suburbs, and people moving into Levittown signed leases with a whites-only clause. Overt discrimination continued in Levitt's suburb for years. This was so entrenched that to this day, Levittown's population is about 1.4% black. But Newsday loved praising Bill Levitt. News coverage did, editorials went even further, calling Levitt farsighted and Long Island's fabulous builder. That 1949 editorial might be the clearest example of Newsday's deep and almost blind support of Levittown, but there are other editorials that come close. Meanwhile, the paper's editorials heartily embraced other civil rights causes. So why the lack of editorial board interest in the racial issue in Newsday's backyard? That question leads us to Alicia Patterson. Our first, second, and final objective is to present the news. If we present the news honestly, we know we will have readers. Newsday will be an independent newspaper. Newsday will be a liberal newspaper. That's from a promotional video for Newsday, in which Alicia Patterson lays out the paper's vision. She was the paper's founder, and in the early years, she drafted or substantially approved its editorials. Liberal back then, to be fair, wasn't as tied to Democrat as it is today. Still, an honest, independent, and liberal background squares a little strangely with the editorial board's defense of a truly big-time developer, one who had exclusionary racial and religious tendencies. But it makes sense that Patterson would want the paper to be bold. She was a woman in a largely man's world. She came from a wealthy family of newspaper barons. Her great-grandfather led the Chicago Tribune, and her dad started the New York Daily News. And she watched as her relatives used their papers for crusading purposes. She was a bold and crusading person herself, including learning how to be a pilot when that was still pretty adventurous. Apparently her Bulgarian flight instructor warned her that only one in 25 women who started the flight course finished it, according to her biographers. But she finished it. She also learned how to make her paper into a crusader. That filtered down to reporters. It's a very exciting place to work This is Robert Caro in old tapes from Newsday Archives. Sorry about the sounds. The tapes have been stored in Newsday's attic for about a thousand years or so. Caro is famous now for having won Pulitzer Prizes for his books on master builder Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson, but he got his start at Newsday. In this tape, Caro says, you could get angry when you worked at Newsday, like righteously angry about a cause. And that came from Alicia Patterson. I mean, 
business. I, I don't pretend to be a, a great intimate guy. But she would always come over to me, and you know, when I would be doing things that she was interested in. I mean, what a crusading spirit there! There was a crusading spirit on the entire newspaper, and I loved it. I just thought it was wonderful. Other people who knew Alicia well tended to admire her. What kind of person was she, Alicia? Oh, uh, delightful. She was hearty. She'd slap her thighs, say ha ha ha. She enjoyed drinking. She didn't. Uh, she cussed it. She felt strongly enough about anything. She was sort of a princess or crown princess. That's another archival tape from interviews done about Newsday history. This one's Hal Burton, who would eventually become one of Patterson's editorial writers. She hunted a lot. I mean, uh, birds, shot birds and so on. And in her time, she and Josephine... That's her sister. I think flew their separate planes from... I couldn't believe they did it from San Francisco, but they flew all over the Near East and hunted all sorts of horned animals, ferocious animals, one thing or another, around in the, in the, uh, in the Far East, not the Near East. And, uh, of course, went up to Canada and Alaska, and she, she flew all cross-country a lot of times. Basically, Patterson was a real jazz age heroine, the kind who struggled against society's rules, including marriage. She actually had three of them and many flirtations, including with presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson. She never had children. Actually, according to Burton, Newsday came along with her third husband, Harry Guggenheim, which is Guggenheim as in the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. It wasn't easy being a woman in the workplace then. Forget about being in charge. Newsday had a managing editor who was known for pinching backsides, which is one of the more includable examples on a family podcast. She was used to a woman yeah. having to make her point more precisely than a man would. That's Phyllis Surf Wagner, one of Patterson's friends in another archival interview. My God, she was marvelous. Most intelligent woman, the most charming woman I ever knew. And what was, was it like to be in her company? Great. I can't think of anyone whose company I'd rather have been in. And she was beautiful. Uh, she didn't try to be. She never tried to look good very much. Uh, she'd come in the office, sort of, try, well, as when I first saw her, I thought she was some babe looking for a job as a stenographer, with her hair falling down out of its bun and back. This is the boss he's talking about, which goes to show how we're really in a different era. According to the history of Newsday written by Bob Keeler, women at the paper said that Patterson was an advocate for them. She certainly took feminist positions, like arguing that women should be eligible for the draft. Hal Burton felt that she had a Midwestern populist bent. Hal, what um, kind of values do you think Alicia had in terms of Newsday's editorial policy? <coughs> well, uh, basically she wanted the paper to speak out frankly, bluntly, whenever necessary, occasionally very carefully. But uh, on the whole, her impulse was uh, liberal, I don't think it's a good term, populist. She had that Midwestern populist approach to things. Burton says she used to quote a line from a Chicago newspaper editor. The purpose of the newspaper is to print the news and raise hell. She, she took a good deal of pride in her editorials. My main thought was that uh, they should, when, when in most cases, be outspoken. I mean, arrive at a conclusion and then express it. Mm -hmm. But if it's a, if it's a 
difficult choice, let's say, then balance the thing out. Her old employees say she was a hands-on boss, and she was definitely hands-on with the editorials. Peckham talks about sometimes riding to work with her from Manhattan to Long Island. They'd cook up the editorial en route to Newsday, and then he'd write it when they got there. But Burton says that she had a few blind spots. To what extent was she mindful, in terms of taking editorial positions, of the prevailing attitudes on Long Island? Did she, would she hesitate to challenge them? Challenge who? The prevailing attitudes on Long Island. Oh, well, I mean, she certainly challenged the real estate developers again and again. Again, not Bill Levitt, but just the general rate. Here's Generally, general, but not Levitt. You know, and here's Burton on another key issue. strongly on social justice, except for the blacks, you see, where, as I recall, we just ignored that whole situation, or else that they really shouldn't be acting so badly towards that effect. I don't think we ever, you know, came out strongly in favor of them. If Patterson ignored the civil rights situation, she paid attention to communism. This was particularly true in the Levittown editorials. Those editorials argue that Newsday knew that general discrimination was bad, but, you know, this local stuff was being stirred up by communists. The dangers of communism were everywhere in the 40s and 50s, including the Newsday editorial page. And that was true in the days before and after that 1949 editorial that defended Levitt. Levitt branded himself as a defender of capitalism, too. One of his most famous quotes is that, quote, no man who owns his house and lot can be a communist. He has too much to do. This was right at the beginning of the Cold War, the era of the Berlin Airlift, which Patterson actually covered personally. Fear was in the air, along with post-war American pride, and communism was a solid excuse to criticize protesters. It was something Newsday's editorials would return to again and again when Levitt was attacked. That included in 1953, when the editorial page was finally explicitly saying how unfortunate it was that a black family was denied a home in Levittown. But even that editorial reserved most of its animus for the American Labor Party, which was associated with and supporting the family. The group's leader, quote, carries the taint of communism with him, the editorial said. In 1949, an editorial said laudably that, quote, if Newsday owned Levittown, there would be no Caucasians-only clause in the leases. But again, the editorial excused Levitt. He probably just, quote, thinks most tenants and buyers are prejudiced, it said. The conclusion is that the commie liners are great little throwers of monkey wrenches into the slow but sure machinery of progress. And that's a quote, too. I mean, communism was the reason for everything. Well, right, yeah. You have to put that into the post-war, the beginnings of the Cold War. Yeah. This is the early Joe McCarthy era. Uh, so people talking about communism, you know, it was like in the, it was... In the air. So naturally, yeah. You so, want to denigrate somebody who's demonstrating against the developer you like, right. why not call him a communist? Hey. This is Bob Keeler, the former Newsday reporter who wrote a history of Newsday that came out in 1990. You know, it was in the air. People would use those words. Right. It was a handy label you could slap onto somebody. So you don't think that that was a true argument? You no, I don't, think a... they, I don't think that was, I don't think they had any evidence of that. It was just something they could say, you know, to sort of put the kibosh on these demonstrators. In other words, as far as civil rights for black people were concerned, Patterson went along with the times. That meant that she had what Keeler calls a mixed record on racial issues beyond Levittown. Here's a pretty good example. The head of the Nassau County Women's Bar Association was a woman named Elizabeth Bass Golding, and Patterson worked with her on the association's forums. For the fourth annual forum in 1947, Golding invited a light-skinned black woman 
a lawyer from Philadelphia, and suggested that Alicia run a photo of the woman in Newsday. Quote, Alicia said, that might be very damaging to the paper because I don't know of any newspaper that has had a picture of a black in it. Golding remembered. I said, then Newsday is going to be the first. Alicia ran the photograph. That's a pretty good example of where her head was, right? Here's another example. In 1961, there was an editorial arguing against the Freedom Rider protests, calling the riders provocative. There were other editorial pages who spoke more forcefully against what was going on in Levittown. The New York Amsterdam News, which is a historically black paper, praised protesters who were angry about Levittown's discrimination in 1949. The protesters were deserving of, quote, the highest civic commendation. I asked Keeler what he thought about why Patterson dropped the ball on Levittown. I think on issues of race, you know, I, I think Alicia may have been typical of her time in some ways, and probably, you know, because she grew up in a sort of a privileged environment, maybe she was less likely than other people to have come around. What's strange is that on other racial and ethnic issues, Patterson was more ahead of things. She married Guggenheim, who was Jewish, and she pushed for more Jewish immigration as World War II began. Family members who are still alive today don't remember a racial blind spot. In 1957, she went on an eight-week tour of Africa with Adlai Stevenson. They visited a jungle medical clinic in the French colony of Gabon, run by a doctor named Albert Schweitzer. Schweitzer had been a Time Magazine Man of the Year, and Adlai Stevenson totally fell under his spell. But Patterson felt differently. She felt that the doctor's attitude towards black patients was, quote, painfully brusque, condescending, bordering on disdain, according to The Huntress, a biography of Patterson. So what was it about Levitt in particular that made Patterson and therefore her paper turn a blind eye? It's impossible to ignore the possibility of self-interest. The context for Levittown's creation was a nationwide affordable housing crisis. In 1946, there were reported to be 100,000 homeless veterans in Chicago. People were desperate for someone to fix this, and Levitt convinced the media that he was the guy. Patterson was perceptive, and she knew that people wanted a housing crusade. Newsday jumped on it quickly. The blatant crusading could sometimes be pretty obvious. One editorial said, quote, the main thing is to get these houses built. The Levittown crusade came at a big moment for Newsday. In the spring of 1949, when Levitt was all over the editorial page, the paper ran a different editorial, celebrating a circulation milestone. 100,000 readers. You know, Newsday was big into this because this was the future for Newsday. You know, and the big mystery is all these New York City newspapers did not sense this gigantic wave of people moving out from the city to Long Island. And for a variety of reasons that I cover in the book, they just didn't take advantage of it. But Newsday was fixated on it. On the growth, you mean? The growth on the movement from, you know, from the city to the suburbs, the returning veterans. As Long Island grew, Patterson's Newsday more and more became the thing that was tying the place together. The thing that I think she accomplished most was that I never could believe that a paper published in the Garden City would interest anybody in Glen Cove or anybody in Freeport or anybody in Long Beach. You know, this why? is Hal Burton, the editorial why? writer. Why? Because Long Island had always been a sequence of little towns all over the place. And the newspaper, but just by being there and by publishing countywide, first county and then two counties wide, uh, made people, convince people that they were part of a community which they never considered themselves to be before. Levittown paved the way for suburban communities, and those communities were Newsday's business model, so Patterson fought for them. She really did represent Long Island. She felt 
so fiercely about it, as if she'd grown up there in, in Illinois. I mean, it became her love. Mm -hmm. She wanted it to have a zoo. She wanted it to have uh, housing. She wanted it to have good streets. She wanted everything. I mean, she just absolutely adored. Long Island, it was her child, as the newspaper was her child. In recent years, Newsday and its editorial board have established a more complete record on racial issues and a more complete view of Long Island. Its Shame of the Suburbs series in 2004 highlighted Long Island's segregated schools. Editorials and news stories have kept a spotlight on discrimination. This year's real estate agent investigation is in that tradition. Patterson died in 1963 before the arc of the civil rights movement. It wasn't until 1968 that Bill Levitt changed his ways of discriminating. This wasn't exactly a bold step. It was right after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Less than a week after King's death, Levitt bought an ad in the New York Times. It said that for many years, Levitt houses have just gone along with local custom on integration, riding with the Times. But quote, as a tribute to Dr. King, this company has adopted a new policy, effective at once, eliminating segregation any place it builds. Keep in mind, 20 years had gone by since Newsday's main editorials about Levittown. Would the editorial board crossing Levitt have made a difference? In 1948, Newsday ran an open letter to Levitt arguing that he wasn't giving residents enough time to decide about buying. It was one of a couple times that the editorial page came out against Levitt. In this case, Levitt was frustrating residents, and so the editorial page stood up for them. Levitt relented, which meant that the editorial page got results when it tried. I'm not saying that if Newsday had been more enlightened, then that integration would have come about more quickly. But we certainly weren't being a thought leader on that, on that subject. But no one else with sufficient power saw fit to be a leader on the racial issue either. So Levittown remained mostly white, except for a handful of families who slipped through the cracks. Tune in for their story, and the story of their neighbors then and now. That's in episode three.